Hello and welcome to another episode of the Creative Waffle Podcast. I'm your host Mark Hirons and today the show is brought to you by Blue Deer Design. Today on the show we're talking to London-based Pentagram partner John Marshall. John is an industrial designer who joined Pentagram in April 2018. We'll talk about him finding a design and his background in design, how he worked on huge projects including the London 2012 Olympic torch, and we go into the details of that project. We'll also talk about Pentagram and how the structure of the company works, how each team is broken down, what it's like working with Pentagram. This was really exciting for me to talk to another Pentagram partner. Previously talked to Paul Lecher, but this time we actually got an insight into how Pentagram works. Please do go and check out the Paul Lecher episode if you do enjoy this one. Without further ado, this is my chat with John Marshall. Good, yeah. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. It's great. Yeah, nice to be talking to you. Can we start off with uh, a bit more about yourself and who you are and your background? Yeah, so um, I'm John Marshall. I am a partner here at Pentagram in the London office, which is what you probably see. I've been here since April. Uh, and prior to that, I ran a design studio called Map. And prior to that, I um, was at Barbara Oscarby. Uh, I'm an industrial designer, but my work is not sort of classic industrial design. It, it crosses a bit into branding, a bit into packaging. UX experiences and um, anything I can get my hands on, basically. So how did you get into design and and what really sparked it for you? Good question, actually. I mean, my father was an engineer and so I was always fiddling about with things um, that he brought home or that I saw in his engineering factory. And and so I've always been fascinated by things and, you know, classic thing for an industrial designer, played with Lego and took things to pieces. And, um, but I didn't actually, I didn't really know that industrial design existed as a profession until I was about 19. Um, when I was on an art foundation course, Paul College of Art, and um, I really wanted to be a graphic designer, but I wasn't good enough. Right. Um, and then I was encouraged to look into industrial design as a profession, and that, which I hadn't yet discovered. And I, I saw this pen that was designed by um, in the early 80s by an Italian-German designer called Luigi Calani. And um, it was for the brand Pelican, and the, the, the pen clip that you kind of clip on your pocket looks like the beak of a Pelican. Oh, nice. That, that was actually, I mean, I always say that was the kind of, product that got me excited about industrial design because it was a it was a physical product mass produced but I just loved the way the um the design evoked the brand the kind of essence of the brand so uh that's what yeah that's what got me started on industrial design and then I I I went and did a degree in product design and then MA in industrial design and kind of career took off from then so then you went, uh, you went over to, um, what was the first company, sorry, you worked at? I I did. So after, I, 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 after my degree, I worked for a couple of years in um, just sort of random freelancing in um, retail design. Right. And then I went to the Royal College of Art, studied industrial design. And when I graduated, I worked for Ross Lovegrove. Right. So that, that was a company I couldn't quite remember the name of, yeah, sorry. Yeah. In the mid-90s, I mean, he was an amazing um, sort of prolific designer um, with a particular sort of point of view on um, 
design, physical design that was inspired by nature. So, you know, he had a particular, I wouldn't call it a style, but almost like a philosophy on design. And it was, it was just a really great place to graduate and learn um, and design products and furniture with a kind of a, a really great team. And I learned a huge amount and worked with with some really great designers who are, you know, who remain friends actually to this day. So awesome. Yeah, great kind of couple of years out of college, out of the RCA. Nice. And then, and then moving on to Pentagram, you, you worked there as a designer first of all. Um, how was that like? What's that like and compared to being a partner at Pentagram? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean it was a, it was a long time ago that I was here as a designer. Um but I sort of fell in love with the place. I mean, it was where I first sort of realized that, you know, you can connect together brand and experience in industrial design and environments. Um, and um, I worked uh, for Daniel Weil, who was also my professor at the Royal College of Art when I was studying there. Nice. So his work is, it fans across industrial design and structural packaging and interiors and architecture. So I got to try um, a bunch of different sort of traditional disciplines, I suppose you'd call them, and um, but also saw what was going on with the graphics partners who were developing identities, and you know, in particular, uh, a project that was going on then. Daniel Weil, partner here in New York, with uh, Michael Beirut, partner in uh, sorry, Daniel Weil, partner in London, with Michael Beirut, partner in New York, working for United Airlines. Basically, just designing every single touch point that you come into contact with as a passenger. So the identity, you know, the cutlery, the uniforms, the lounges, the check-in, the tickets, everything. And so I sort of, for me, that was just really amazing to see that you could, as a design agency, you could own, you know, the design of every touch point. Um, yeah across the whole experience. And, and that project, I thought, made the most of Pentagram's unique model, which is partner-led, but then you know, partners can work individually, but also can then collaborate um, to, to, do, to do amazing things. So yeah, I guess that's sort of the dream project as well, is you can take over all of those different parts of the brand and, and really, really make them uh, consistent and, and to support each other. Um, but what, like, for people who don't know, Pentagram's how it works, all the partners and all of the teams, how, how does it work and how does it stay organised? Yeah, it's a sort of unique structure, um, and so the history of it goes goes back to the early seventies. There were five partners: three graphic designers, an industrial designer, and an architect. And they worked individually, but also then they came together to do projects that required these different touch points. So I think one one of the ones that I read about was BP, um, you know, the British Petroleum. They were looking at their identity and the storytelling, but also the petrol pumps, which is industrial design, and even the, the, the forecourts, which is architecture. But they sort of came together um, with this idea of building a design consultancy that could support designers individually, um, but also that it could collaborate. And then it had this um, really structure where you know, partners are equal. So, um, Share profits equally and and take an equal role in running the business. Um, so there's no CEO or, or managing director. But the partners themselves run the whole business and own the business. And then each of us has our own team 
uh, and execute our projects directly with clients. So um, there's a couple of sort of unique things in that, uh, but I think, you know, the main attraction for me is just it's, it's the focus is always on design. You know, it's, it's sort of, it is a business, of course, but the focus is really on design. And because, you know, there are now 22 partners worldwide, um, it means that uh, clients who, you know, come and work with Pentagram get to work with one of the partners who are practicing designers rather than you know, perhaps working with an account manager or, or kind of a big tier of people. So. So, so when the project comes in, uh, is it the, like you say, the, the partner that takes over it and then delegates it out or, or do they help with the process or how does that, the process of designing free pentagram work? Well, mo most partners sort of have their own, we're all like mini businesses. So some of us just you know, bring in projects directly and work on them. Some clients come to pentagram as, as an overall kind of brand and then, um, partners will sit together and discuss you know who's interested in that project who wants to work on it who's best qualified and then it would be you know assigned to one of the partners by the partners mm. and then that partner will lead the project right the way through so it doesn't doesn't really ever get delegated of course we all have teams but but in general the principle is that a partner will lead the project right the way through and ideally be in meetings with clients mm. um, yeah, and so partners are practicing designers as well as running the business. That's, that's sort of pretty yeah. I've, I've only been here for six months, so I, I'm, not the, I'm not the best person to talk about the kind of history and the working style, but I, I certainly have enjoyed the first six months, and I, and I really love that, that sort of opportunity to do my own work and do that alongside other amazing creative people, but also the opportunity to collaborate. And um, yeah, that was the attraction of, of actually joining here is, is you know, when I'm doing a, an industrial design project that has a user interface instead of you know, trying to do it myself and, and struggling or working with another agency I can just bring in another partner who's expert in UI and UX and digital. Yeah that's really helpful that you can help each other out that's, that's ideal. Um, so how would someone like another agency take that model on and because there's something I'm, I want to do in the future, obviously only being 20, I'm miles away from it, but it's, it's build up this design agency or design studio. And it seems like an attractive model, but one to get quite, it get, can get quite complex. And obviously it's, it's grown massive with Pentagram and they obviously thrived on it. But how, how would a company take that on? I think, I think there's probably some good reasons why the model is unique. I mean, it's, it's, it's a model that partnership structure is, is uh, you see it in, in, um, law firms or accountancy firms but it's not so common in creative agencies um, that typically grow more like a pyramid with you know one or two creative directors or business owners at the top and I think one of the difficulties is is this sort of you know maybe even I can say a 70s idea of sharing everything equally which mm -hmm. is really it's actually a really hard principle to stick to and to to um, believe in and so you know inevitably even with Pentagram's model, you get some partners who are, you know, really at the peak of their career and they're doing incredible work and you know, probably even bringing in um, great levels of fees. But, uh, you know, there may be other partners who are in different stages of their career, like myself, who's sort of still building a business. And so you have to really um, believe in that idea of sharing things equally and supporting each other. 
And so I think that can only happen, I think that would be really hard to start doing um, on an established business. Personally. But I think if you, yeah, yeah. you know, like in your case, if you had another partner um, or a collaborator and you sort of, from the beginning, if you set up your corporate structure to allow you to, to share and collaborate, you could do it. But um, yeah. as far as I'm aware, there, there aren't too many other creative agencies that, that have, um, a similar model there are some but um yeah how, how is it that pentagram's growing this strong and, and just it's got this massive it's, it's pretty much what it is it, everyone knows it as the the best design agency in the world so how is it growing to be this i think i think there were you know I, i've talked a lot about that sort of partnership model but i think there was another really interesting thing their founding partners did is that they right from the beginning they they sort of set it up to be friendly and, and generous towards incoming new partners. Right. So that, you know, they could bring in um, and expand by bringing in um, people at an equal level who are, you know, ideally people who are at the top of their game in, in different fields of design. And so that's enabled it to grow. And then what's also happened is, you know, random things like, I think, going back into the sort of 70s and 80s, maybe one or other partner decided they want to go and live in New York. And then that, that meant the beginning of the New York office. And so you know, we also have a, an office in Berlin and another one in Austin in Texas. And that's not strategic, it's just <laughs> go and live there. You know? so, awesome. so, but you know, somehow you know, it, just, it, it just keeps reviving itself. And um, uh, yeah. I don't really know what the secret is other than these, these sort of two things, the, the partnership model, the sharing, and then the idea of bringing in new partners to kind of renew um, and regenerate like Doctor Who. Yeah. yeah. I suppose everyone watching this and listening to this will be thinking now, how, how can I become a partner? <laughs> so how, how can someone become a, a, a pentagram partner? Well, I, I, I'm not the best person to ask because I'm really atypical um, and I think in, because I'm an industrial designer and, and obviously through its history, Centrogram has had, I don't know the exact number, but possibly even you know, 45 or 50 partners in total. But I, as far as I'm aware, I think only four or five were industrial designers. And so, um, so my routine has been slightly different, but I think for graphic designers or, or designers who are working in sort of brand and identity, it, it seems like, you know, existing partners are constantly connected with, um, you know, the world of graphic design and they're going and giving talks and watching talks and they're well aware of what's going on in industry and, and uh, just keeping their eye out for people that they think would be um, interesting to talk to. There doesn't seem to be any kind of strategy other than you know, who would be a good partner? That there doesn't seem to be a, um, a sort of overarching idea of um, bringing in a person with a specific expertise or experience. So I think it is really just chemistry. Um, and you know, I've I've, I've been, been lucky to have been able to join, but it also it's quite a long process. So from the first sort of tap on the shoulder, you know, it, there's a lot of discussion and has to work on both sides. And you see that. That takes you know, sometimes two to eight years. Right. Yeah. Nice one. Um, that's really good. Look into into Pentagram and who they are, and obviously what's their structure. And yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, so Barbara Oscar, you, where you were there for a while, and 
Um, how, how is that different actually for, for a design studio and from, from working at Pentagon, obviously more graphic design, like you say, to working in an industrial design place and more product design focused? How does the process like compare? I think it was, so for me, you know, I, while I was working here at Pentagram for Daniel Vial, I still sort of, I was working on a bunch of different projects, but you know, my passion was always industrial design or products. And um, actually then I was friends with Edward Barber and Jay Oscarby, so I kind of met them for coffee every now and then. And, you know, as often happens, they, they won an amazing project and, and then they said to me, you know, we're looking for somebody to, to support us, to lead this project. And it, 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 it's actually like an airline interiors project. And it just looked super interesting for me. And so I, I joined them and I, and I worked on that. And through that process, I built up a small team of industrial designers. And then just at that point, they were um, you know, really going from strength to strength with their furniture design work. And so this little band of industrial designers, we, we sort of became the beginning of um, Ed and Jay's larger studio, and working alongside their architecture company, which is called Universal Design Studio. So, you know, for me, it was really great to work with friends and we were all um, similar age, similar kind of philosophy. And it really, you know, it felt like a very um, amazing, energetic growing studio. It was quite small at that time. and. Um, and also, you know, Ed and Jay were just uh, really uh, had an incredible reputation, both in the furniture industry and also um, in their architecture world. So we were just getting really, really great projects. So for me, you know, I was just, you know, every month there was another great project coming in and we were building a team and, and doing incredible things. And I suppose, you know, that was, you know, we were working on a, a, a lamp with the tab lamp for floss or I worked on that chair called the Delaware Pavilion chair. I also worked on a bunch of projects for Establishing Sons, which was a kind of a big player in the um, uh, furniture design industry that sort of entered with a lot of backing and um, they used to have great parties at the Milan Furniture Fair. So it felt like a kind of great time. This was basically uh, sort of mid 2000s. Um, and and I suppose, you know, for me, that that kind of that period of working with Ed and Jay culminated in the Olympic torch in 2012, which was a project yeah. I was um, quite deeply involved on. And, you know, we we worked incredibly hard. The whole studio worked incredibly hard to sort of win the pitch. And then we had um, not really enough time to deliver the project. So, so my role was really on you know, delivering that as, as a production piece um, in the, it's a batch of 8,000 Olympic torches. So it was a, a weird number. Yeah. Neither sort of like low volume production nor high volume production. So, you know, an amazing project and obviously like a career landmark for anybody or for all of us who worked on it. And, um, and, uh, and in parallel, you know, what was interesting is that we were getting asked by a lot of technology companies um, for a kind of point of view on technology. And that's how we then formed um, like another type of consultancy within the overall group, which was called MAP, mm. which I, you know, later on, I then dedicated 100% of my time to, to running MAP and, and growing MAP. Um, and so it was, for me, you know, that, that period, I, I worked with Edward and Jay for 12 years, 15 years. <clears throat> and it was in, 
I guess in two phases, it was the, the Barbaroskoby work, which was furniture and then limited edition furniture and the Olympic torch. And then later on, um, co-founding and running MAP, which was technology, you know, working for big brands and startups and you know, working on projects for Kickstarter and, yeah. you know, re really exciting, amazing work that, um, made it extremely difficult decision to actually leave all that and, and come and join Pentagram. But uh, sometimes you, you have these points in your career where you have to pivot and, and uh, you feel it's right to then do something else. So. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that'd be a huge achievement. Anyway, any designers, a career designing something for Olympics or a World Cup or some big global thing. I was talking to Miles Newland, the guy who helped... Um, uh, but uh, Wolf Hollins designed the logo for the Olympics. Yes. And, and um, yeah, he, he was, he was thinking of similar lines, just a, such a big thing. Uh, overall, he wasn't, he wasn't, I don't think he was too happy with the overall outcome of the logo, but um, it, for you, the Olympic torch, what was the process like of going through that, getting the briefing and the pitching? What, what did they actually want in the brief? Because a lot of people, a lot of the public just see it as a, as a cool, cool torch. Yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting because the, first of all, they, they left it a little bit late. I mean, I don't want to criticise them, but they left it a little bit late to brief out the project. So we only had, I think we had a creative brief in a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks to do the design concept. Um, and at that point, we'd been narrowed down on credentials and experience from, I think, eight, eight or nine hundred agencies that requested, you know, or, or mentioned that they were interested down to eventually 50 and then five who were, who were then briefed to come up with a proposal. And yeah, so then we were only given about, I mean, really it felt like a week to come up with a proposal. And you know, for me, the interesting thing was there were, there were two parts of it. One part of it was really about storytelling. You know, this Olympic torch is, you get the flame from Greece, it's kindled using the rays of the sun and bring that Olympic flame to the host country and then the torch, you know, the torchbearers take the flame all around the country. And it's a way of, sort of connecting communities. Um, and, and then eventually that flame comes to the stadium and it lights the cauldron. So that's all about storytelling. But then the other part is just about engineering because you know, the flame can't go out mm. in wind or rain or snow. Um, also, you know, there is a, a fixed cost that we had to make each torch and because each torchbearer has a torch you know we had to make eight thousand plus spares um, and we also had to kind of make them uh, in not really enough time as i mentioned and an immovable deadline because the day that the torch relay started the torches had to be ready you know so there was there was just no flexibility in the deadline so there was there were these two parts to it, it was capturing this story and then it was executing and dealing with the project management and the kind of detail of the, the um, production run, basically. Yeah. About sort of 12 to 18 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so giving you a week to, to come up with the proposal with that, that's obviously quite, quite a short amount of time for such a big project. Um, with, with the design and concepts of it, where did that come from and how do you create ideas for something so abstract as that? I think, you know, in every, I mean, all projects are sort of the same that, I mean, I like it when a group of us sit down together and come up with a bunch of ideas and, you know, maybe somebody brings an idea to the table. And I think 
with the Olympic torch, you know, we'd been given this brief, we'd all thought about it and talked about it. And then Edward and Jay sort of had, had gone home, done a couple of sketches, brought them to the table. We had a massive discussion and sort of out of that discussion, we, we came up with these core ideas, you know, that it was the triangular form, that it was perforated and, um, and the gold color, which it wasn't much to go on. But then, you know, a torch has a certain shape, you have to hold it in your hand. And we, had a, we had a bunch of really nice inputs, like we wanted to make it really lightweight because um, the torch bearers are quite young and over the years, the torches had actually got heavier and heavier. And so, you know, sometimes having that, that kind of constraint of a deadline actually just forces you to, to go with one, of, one or two of your first ideas. So we sort of went with, you know, I think that Jay had a sketch of some perforated material and we thought, okay, perforations is good because, you know, the, the perforations mean it's easy to grip, it's lightweight. And also that we had this idea that you could see the flame within the torch. Yeah. And then, so we then we sort of put, just really quickly put together some visuals and made some models and did some tests with the flame in our own backyard to see if that perforation worked. And, and we put together a pitch and then actually when we, I mean, I can't remember if we made this up in the actual pitch meeting or whether it was just before, but we sort of had all this, we had this perforated form and, and somebody just said, you know, yeah, there's 8,000 holes, you know, one for each torchbearer, one for each mile of, of the relay. And, you know, they absolutely loved that because that's just a brilliant bit of narrative. And they were saying, oh, that's perfect. You know, when it's coming into the stadium, that's what the commentators will say, you know. So, um, you know, I think it was little things like that. There's really strong story, which, which um, it's just really easy for them to pick up on. And then the people who make the decisions could take that away and tell their colleagues. And, and then, you know, rightly so, we, we sort of won with our great design. And then, you know, then we had to go back to the studio. And we're like, oh my God, how many perforations are there? Counting <laughs> <laughs> up on our sketches, like how many, Fortunately, it was in the region. It was like six thousand, so we thought it's not a million miles away from eight thousand. And so, you know, one of the complexities of designing is that we had to create a sort of computer algorithm to put the holes on the surface mm. to make sure there were always eight thousand, and because the, the shape is tapered, they can inside. So it was, a, it was a super interesting process, very yeah. and very exciting. Yeah, yeah I, I, might, I remember going to uh, when I was younger about I was still at school and after school I got picked up my parents and we went into Sainsbury's and they had Olympic torches where you could go and help them and, and take a picture of them I've got that photo, photo I was thinking must be still on Facebook somewhere but I, yeah it was such an amazing moment I mean I, I don't know how many people in the whole of the UK were just caught by the fever of the Olympics and, and being able to hold it and, and see it run by the, the, the whole relay was yeah, really summed up the whole Olympic Games, and and that was one of my favourite memories of my childhood. And so, being able to speak to the, one of the designers on the team is absolutely incredible. Um, so yeah, yeah, thanks for that, and it's, yeah, thanks for making a good memory. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, so what did the sort of public? Did you get much public opinion on that? And what what did the was the overall reaction? I think the overreaction. Uh, I mean, the reaction was really positive, and you know, it, it, but it wasn't just. Which I like to think it was the torch design, but it was also the whole, yeah. whole London Olympics. There was a really good feeling around it, and um, 
and I think, you know, the country came together, the timing was really good, it was well hosted, it was well organised, and, and I think, you know, a lot of that positivity rubbed off on the torch relay. Also, the torch relay is the sort of first bit of the Olympics that people experienced, so the fact that that was successful. Yeah. And from our point of view, you know, it was the most successful torch technically as well, so it only went out three times, which is quite unusual. That's awesome. They go out a lot more than that, so we were quite happy with that. Um, and yeah, I mean, public reaction was, was great, and obviously, it, you know, it won a bunch of design awards as well, and museum collections and things. It feels pretty distant now, and I have to say, sometimes when you really put everything into a project like that, Actually, when you've finished it, you can't wait to sort of move on. Yeah. So for, for a while afterwards, I was doing a bunch of talks and um, talking about it and taking it to schools and talking to students and going to conferences. But I haven't talked about it. This is the first time I've talked about it for, for a while. It, it's nice to talk about it, but yeah. in the immediate aftermath, I, I was actually ready to move on and do different projects. And so we, it was really nice that with the sort of pivot towards more technology type projects that I was doing with Matt, mm. you know, working with Google and Samsung and startups like Cano and things like that. It was actually quite nice to be doing something completely different um, with a sort of different tone to it. So with Matt, like you're moving on from what you're doing at uh, Barbaroscopy. So it was, a, was it a completely new company or they sort of found, helped found it as well, didn't they? It was, it was really um, in the beginning it was the same thing. So we, right. we, we were working with um, companies like Sony on technology projects uh, through Barbaroscopy. Um, and one characteristic of those projects is they were a bit more collaborative with the clients um, and, so, and required a slightly different type of team and also a different pace of work. So they were much more intense. Right. So initially it was, you know, myself and one or two other designers from Barbaroski working on those projects. And, and as we started to do more of those, you know, that, that part of the studio was working more and was, ended up being bigger than the part of the studio that was working on furniture design. So, you know, together with Edward and Jay, we kind of sat down and sort of thought it makes sense to, to give it its own separate company and its own name. Um, and but we still stayed in the same studio, so we still the same team. Right. So the first few years, Map was you know it was a separate company, um, and that was sort of co-founded by myself with Edward and Jay. And then, um, but I was still working on Barbaroski projects, and so were kind of my team. And then over the years, we, we started to become more specialised. So, sort of two to three years into Map. I'd actually grown the team at Matt to sort of eight or nine designers, and they were almost 100% on Matt technology projects. And in fact, at that point, then started collaborating more with Universal Design Studio, which is Jay's other company, the architecture company. So there's quite a unique structure as well in that studio that you had Barbaroscopy, Universal Design Studio, and Matt, three separate businesses under one roof, basically. As a shared studio space, the shared admin team mm. with Ed and Jay as founders of all three, so that that was also kind of quite unique. Does that, sorry, does that get um, 
Did I get messy at all? Or does it get like what was the culture like and that sort of thing? Because you mentioned earlier that it was really good and uh, at Barbarossi, but obviously is it is it all literally in one studio or do you have divides or how do you keep everything? Yeah, to, so as as we as all three businesses expanded, we ended up, you know, in one studio, but within that studio there were separate rooms. So right. to, so there were some shared spaces like the kitchen, but you know you weren't all. It wasn't one big open plan space, um, which sort of worked because there are different working styles. Particularly, my, my team, you know, were quite noisy, and it's a lot of discussion, and, and and architecture sometimes requires a lot of concentration. So some of the architects, you know, needed more peace and quiet. I'm I'm very I'm generalising very much. Yeah. <laughs> so so essentially, we sort of. It was great because we had separate spaces, but we also had shared spaces. So the experience of it was very, very positive. It was really great. And nice. I mean, no, to, to address your question directly, it didn't it didn't get chaotic or sticky in any way. You know, it sort of it just grew organically, and you know, we just kept on talking about it. And you know, obviously, people were expanding and contracting and doing things, but yeah, we were all friends, and um, yeah, it was great. What's it like though to move away from someone, something that you've grown and something you've helped grow from the start? Because obviously that's that's sort of your child, and that's not as, as well with the guys from Art Barbaroscopy. But it's yeah, how, how do you move away? Obviously, Pentagram is a lot of massive. Obviously, it's a big opportunity, but yeah, how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was really just it was absolutely a personal decision, and it was you know for me, Map was was becoming very successful, and I had a big team, and I was really enjoying the work. Um, and you know, I would have been happy to carry on, um, but as I say, I had a really good team, so I didn't feel by leaving that I would, you know, leaving something that would then die. It, quite the opposite. I felt that actually the the team, um, Alex and Will, who, who worked with me there, who were associates, took over as directors, and you know, it will, it will go from strength to strength. And for me, I was actually looking for something slightly different, which was to work with a slightly smaller team. Mm. And also, as I mentioned, you know, my work was um, <clears throat> going more to more. My, in, my interests were going more towards where industrial design cross design. Okay, cool. So it made, you know, the pentagram thing came along, and it really made sense to me to kind of, you know, it felt like. I was the right age and it felt like Mac was doing really well and that it was an amazing opportunity just to, to start again. And I think sometimes it's very healthy to do that. Yeah. I don't know whether it's going to be a success yet. <laughs> I'm enjoying it very, very much here. And, uh, and I know that, you know, um, the guys at Mac, we're, we're friendly and I know that they're, they're really enjoying it too. And it's going from strength to strength. So awesome. I feel like it's been a bit positive for everybody. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, Okay, so what about the future of design? Where, where do you, where do you think it's going to go in the future? Do you, do you guys at the top of the food chain, like at Pentagram, have any better insights into where it's going to go compared to us regular designers? <laughs> um, I don't like your characterization that we're <laughs> because I actually think you know if you're talking about the future of design, it, it, for me, you know, it's it's the, the youth that you right. Designers like you are really the future of design. So I, I learn a lot from my team who are quite young, and you know, particularly because my work is a lot about you know working in the technology sector. Um, I think the way younger people interact with technology and, and some of the processes and insights, mm. and energy that younger designers 
can bring to that space. I find very interesting. Yeah. Uh, on a more general, you know, from from above, what what I also see is, as, as I've mentioned before, is that um, the traditional silos of you know graphic design, uh, packaging, digital, you know, architecture, exhibitions, whatever. Those I feel like those silos are kind of crumbling in, and actually, what, what we're just looking at is just design. And so, um, I can't really say you know, what I'm doing is industrial design because it's, it's sometimes classic industrial design, sometimes it's, it's UX, sometimes it's packaging, sometimes it's experiences, you know, sometimes it covers on spaces. And so I think in terms of the overall industry, it's that sort of um, interweaving of the different disciplines that I find really interesting. Um, and and that's, that's definitely come from technology i think okay just technology so so advice to advice to people out there would be to start learning other types of design as well not just one specific part get uh well i don't know i mean i still believe in sort of specialists but i think it's slightly different it's more about you know being a specialist in your field but trying to collaborate with, with other people and and sort of not trying to own you know process for yourself but collaborating with other experts and you know i still think we i mean it, it will take a while for the education system to catch up and at the moment people are still educated as graphic designers or industrial designers or furniture designers um, but you know in in time i think hopefully we'll just be designers and you know like you say we'll maybe try our hand at other disciplines but also be specialists in our own field cool really positive um, you know, I'm I'm really into the idea of collaboration, and and, uh, and you know that's without wishing to kind of repeat it over and over again. That's sort of why I'm enjoying it at Pentagram, and that's yeah. why the model really suits me. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so the last three questions I ask everyone. First of all, uh, what's your best piece of advice for designers? Best piece of advice for designers, like young designers or people kind of coming into the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. I'll come at it from industrial design because that's my kind of um, that, that's where I where I, the sphere in which I practice. Um, I think the most important thing if you're if you're sort of a younger designer is to ask lots and lots of questions and don't be afraid to ask stupid questions and also you know know what you don't know. Uh, because you know, some sometimes it's that naivety and those stupid questions that actually just unlock the creative process. And so, I, I really, I always say to sort of younger designers, you know, just just soak it up and just just dive in. Um, and I think specifically with industrial design, you know, a lot of what we do is with physical things. So I'm a great believer in making, you know. So, and I think this applies to other disciplines too, but like making and testing so you can see what you've made. So you know, either make a physical object or you know, create a visual of it, print it out, sketch it with it, and try to engage. Um, and talk, talking is probably, you know, as, alongside drawing, talking is our most important tool. So absolutely, just talk about design. <clears throat> I've got a bit of a silly question. How, <laughs> uh, 
this is sort of one I just thrown in, but um, how 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 do you keep your beard so good? My beard. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's like one of the best I've ever seen. Actually, I need to, I need to get it cut. It's it's getting a little bit, bit long, but no, I I don't know. It just grows like this. A lot of people say to me, "You've got a great beard," but I just you know I lost my hair. But I seem to have lucked out on the on the beard the beard front, so. So I'm kind of compensating. Yeah, that's great. Um, what's your best purchase under a hundred pounds? Under hundred pounds. Yeah, nearly said dollars. Then. Best purchase under hundred pounds. Oh my goodness. Um, that is a really hard question. I wish you'd ask me that. <laughs> I have time to think about it. I mean, staying with the, I suppose, staying with the um, the design kind of thing. I, I guess. A camera you know I, when I was at the Royal College of Art I, I kind of suddenly got interested in cameras and I bought a bunch of cameras that were, eBay didn't exist then really so it was secondhand shops and I just started taking photos of everything my process you know people I was working with and um, so yeah I would say that's probably been one of the, the best awesome uh, last thing how do you want to be remembered I don't want to be remembered. Um, I don't know, actually. I mean, I I sort of feel like I'm still a bit early in my career. Yeah. <laughs> think about my <laughs> going right on my grave. Um, I mean, I, my my work is is so much about the you know the now or the near future that it, it's actually hard to put it into context so i'm you know once i finish projects as i mentioned with the olympic torch you know i kind of was keen to move on and get on with the next thing so i don't really have that sort of sense of perspective that you know any particular project or or something like that defines me it's it's so for me it's more about the process so in terms of design i think i'd like to be remembered for the you know the engagement in the process and um the collaboration and you know for just working with great people and with, with a great team with great clients and uh you know hopefully changing things if, when you're an industrial designer you're surrounded by things all the time and everything is designed and you're constantly thinking i could do that better i could do that better, I could do that better. and so I, I hope that you know that feeling never goes away because that's what drives you to keep keep challenging things and trying to improve things. Um, and, you know, with that comes my, my sort of passion really is that the responsibility that comes with that is just always trying to create new things that have less impact on the environment and sort of use that power we have wisely. So. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Very welcome. Great, great chatting. And uh, yeah, hope we can chat again sometime soon. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Creative Waffle Podcast. If you did enjoy it, please do share it with on social media, share it with your friends, tag at BlueDeadDesign.org at Creative Waffle. Also, you can win a poster, win a Creative Waffle poster, a load of Blue Dead Design stickers and goodies by leaving us a review on iTunes or a comment on YouTube. We're doing a massive Christmas giveaway. We'll be giving away 10 posters exclusively designed by Matt Roth, the illustrator, and that will be live around the 100th episode. Anyone that reviews the show or anyone that comments will automatically get entered into the draw. So, thank you very much for watching. Say hello at hello at bluededesign.co.uk. I'll see you in the next episode.